When you think about investigative journalism, what stories or scenes come to mind? Maybe you imagine a pile of public records stacked atop a messy desk, or a secretive parking garage meeting like in All the President's Men, or a fat envelope of leaked documents in your mailbox one afternoon. Those are great moments, and sure, they happen from time to time, but for most investigative reporters, the work isn't the kind of thing that unfolds like the plot of a movie. There's a lot of waiting, a lot of false starts and dead ends. Sometimes you can never really get to the bottom of what you're after. And if you do, the results might not be everything you hope they would be. On this episode of the podcast, we're talking about one of those investigations. Stories that I've seen that, that affect change generally show that there's a problem and there is a, a villain behind it or something that you can do to change it. This wasn't that story. For months, Brandon Stahl of the Minneapolis Star Tribune worked to figure out why American Indian children were entering the state foster system at a shockingly high rate. He teamed up with data journalist Mary Jo Webster, and together they peeled away layer after layer, working to figure out just what made Minnesota so unique. And the answer across the board on everything was no, 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 we can't draw any conclusions from any of this. In August, the Star Tribune published a series of articles, a short documentary, and a data package outlining their findings. IRE's Blake Nelson talked to Brandon and Mary Jo about their process, including all the roadblocks along the way. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. In August of 2015, Brandon Stahl was at a casino, specifically the Mystic Lake Casino in Minnesota. One, maybe 200 people were seated around him. Nobody was gambling. In the room with them was a man named Kevin Washburn. At the time, Washburn was the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the federal agency that serves the 500-plus American Indian tribes across the U.S. Washburn was in the middle of a cross-country tour talking about a very specific problem, the number of American Indian kids removed from their homes by foster care agencies, kids who were often then placed with non-American Indian families. This was not a new problem. Back in the 70s, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act to address this exact situation. If American Indian children needed to be removed from their homes, lawmakers thought they should at least be placed with other American Indian families. Flash forward 40 years. The law hasn't quite worked out as planned. Today, the Bureau is concerned that courts and state governments are weakening the act. Brandon was at the meeting as a reporter for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. For years, he's reported on foster care in the state, so he was used to hearing horror stories about broken families. But seated in the casino, somebody said something he had never heard before. There was a lot of discussion about how Minnesota was lagging far behind when it came to um, problems in foster care compared to other states. And somebody, I think, mentioned, yeah, and there's, there's data that shows that Minnesota has the highest disparity in the country. And, you know, when you hear that, you just your ears perk up. The highest disparity in the country? As in, Minnesota places a higher share of American Indian kids in foster care than any other state? I put it in the back of my mind as something to kind of dig at, to poke at. And around the fall, I, I think, is when we 
had had enough data to to show that yeah, there's clearly some sort of problem going on here. That not only does this federal data show that there's a major problem of this high disparity, but our own state data shows six out of a thousand white children in foster care, ninety six out of a thousand American Indian children in foster care. There was that huge disparity that our own state data had. Think about that for a minute. That means if you went to Minnesota and randomly gathered 1,000 white kids in a room, six of them would probably be foster kids. But if you gathered up the same number of American Indian kids, 96 would be in foster care. Foster care is notoriously hard to report on. The same can go for reporting on American Indians. Both involve navigating a variety of laws intended to protect, say, a child's privacy or a community's independence. But before Brandon could even think about finding people to talk to, he needed data that showed that disparity. And if he could find it, he knew he'd need some help analyzing it. And then he started trying to figure out, well, where can I get data on this and what kind of data can I, you know, what, what questions should we be asking? That's the point he brought me in. That's Mary Jo Webster, a data journalist at the Tribune. She's been working with data for almost 20 years and is often juggling 10 to 20 projects at any given time. Brandon and Mary Jo found their answer in, get ready for a big name here, the Adoption and Foster Care Analysis Reporting System, a massive data set that goes by the acronym AFCARS. AFCARS is managed by Cornell University and contains every single reported foster placement and adoption in every state going back years. It's all anonymous. You're not going to find any names. But if you're looking for the big picture, Cornell has that covered. There was a, somebody at Cornell who actually did the first analysis for us looking at Minnesota compared to other states and also looking at Minnesota compared to other states over time when it came to the, um, the foster care disparities. So they were wonderful. We spent several days like camped out in a conference room. So I'd plug my computer in and we'd pull the AFCAR's data up um, on my computer and, and I would say to Brandon, okay, what is the question you want to ask this data? Their analysis was aided by some statistical software called SPSS, it only took one email from Mary Jo to convince her bosses to buy it. Simply telling them, you know, we can use it for this project, we can use it for doing regression analysis on school test scores, things like that. Um, you know, once you make that case that it, it has more than one use to it, then they signed right off on it. The more Brandon and Mary Jo looked at the numbers, the more they were convinced that something was seriously wrong in their state. I took the data to a lot of state leaders in child protection. And their first response is, well, you just can't compare state to state. And so, you know, you get that response, you take that back to Cornell, you, and I even took that to the um, Administration for Families and Children, and they say, well, no, you're supposed to be able to compare state to state. That's the purpose of the data. Now, yes, some states might not be reporting complete data. Some cases might not be reported. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of, of records in each year. So. We, we thought it was, it was okay to go forward with the, the analysis. Their first hope was that they could find a clear answer to why this was happening. Why were American Indian kids having such different experiences with the foster care system? We thought that maybe this AFCAR's data would tell us something. You know, are these children being pulled from their home for reasons that are vastly different than in other states? Or are they, 
are they somehow the foster parents getting more money somehow for these kids or is there anything, um, you know, are these kids behaviorally troubled, um, more likely to have behavior problems than other kids who are being pulled? And the answer across the board on everything was no, no, no. We can't draw any conclusions from any of this. This is a common situation for data journalists. Data is really good at who, what, when, and where. It's really horrible at why. And this is a very good example of that. We just, it couldn't give us any of the answers to why. Brandon also wasn't having much luck finding the why in his interviews, which is interesting because almost everyone he talked to actually agreed that this disparity was a real problem. I got a, not a million different answers. That's obviously hyperbole, but numerous answers, but nothing that was really concrete. So early on, we realized we're going to have to do these stories without a definitive answers to the why. The one explanation they could reference was the country's long, dark history of American Indians being exploited, abused, and taken advantage of by outsiders. Brandon has no American Indian heritage, so he knew he was walking a fine line reporting the story. That was not easy. Um, Let me kind of form my thoughts on that. You know, I I knew going into this reporting that I I would be seen as an outsider and it would be very difficult to gain trust. I fortunately had a a few sources that I had made, um, just developed good relationships with, in the Minneapolis American Indian community, um, one of them, in particular, the director of the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I explained the stories to her. She was completely on board, helped me find um, people to talk with, to interview, to shadow. Uh, that was amazing, and she really she vouched for me. There were also plenty of dead ends. He had almost no luck on reservations. When he would call tribal leaders, they would balk at letting him attend any child protection hearings. But many other hearings in Minnesota are public, and he started to look for people who could put a face to the data. This, however, brought up a new problem. Brandon knew he wasn't just reporting on a broken system. He was reporting on broken people. There are serious problems in these families in these cases, and I've looked at hundreds of cases, and I haven't seen one where I thought, I don't know if that Indian family should have been broken apart. Instead, I'm seeing... There's really good reason for the, 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 what the, child, the actions that the child protection worker took. If he was going to produce an entire series, Brandon knew he would not only have to convince people who had lost their kids to open up about that heartache, he would have to convince them to open up about the decisions and addictions that led to child protection workers getting involved in the first place. And that's when I came upon Denise Robinson. When Brandon first saw Denise, she was walking into a courtroom to ask a judge to let her keep her newborn son. She was seven months sober, but she had been taking methadone, and her one-month-old was born addicted. Denise and her attorney made a compelling case for the newborn's return, but a representative from her tribe, the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe, also attended, and he disagreed. He thought Denise was not ready to regain custody of her child. The judge was a man named Luis Bartolome, and he was both very aware of and very invested in the issues facing Denise and countless other American Indian families, and he wasn't sure she was ready either. Denise would go on to be an important character in Brandon's story, but early on, it wasn't always clear that would be the case. The challenge of that was that I had to get Denise Robinson on board with this, and she was a complete stranger to me, and um 
Mitchley wanted absolutely nothing to do with this. Brandon spoke to her at the courthouse. He left her voicemails, texted her, sent her messages on Facebook for months. Early on, she even agreed to an interview at a treatment center. Go to the facility, um, knock on the door, you know, ring the buzzer, and I say, hey, I'm here to meet Denise Robinson. And they say, just a minute. And then they get back, we can neither confirm nor deny Denise Robinson lives here. Brandon wasn't surprised. He understood how he came across. Here you have somebody, again, who's this, this white guy who was in court one day, and now he's trying to ask me all these questions about my past and my history and why I'm doing this and that. I mean, I, I, I would be distrustful of me, too. Brandon had given up on ever talking to her when he happened to attend a protest at a county courthouse. So I'm sitting on a bench, and I look up, and right behind me, she was right there. And so I, you know, just asked her, you Denise Robinson? Because I knew who she was. And, and yeah, why? Who are you? She didn't even remember me. But she was there for a drug court hearing. And so that was able to kind of rekindle connecting with her. During all this, Mary Jo acted as a sounding board for Brandon. It's really, really something that a lot of, I think, investigative reporters need. You need somebody who can really be a, um, a safe space to go talk to. Um, it's really, it's a hard thing to do with the person who's going to ultimately edit your story because they start to envision what the story is going to be. And you don't want to plant some strange vision that doesn't end up working out too much. So it's really, I think it's good having somebody who's slightly off to the side and not completely um, invested in it. From August to December, Brandon's story was mostly a passion project he worked on around other articles. But around January, the series became Brandon's full-time job. Mary Jo was never able to make it her only project, but she stayed connected. It helps that he and I sit right near each other, so a lot of days it's just standing up and talking over the little partition wall between us. Um, a lot of emails back and forth. He'd say, hey, somebody sent me this email with, here's what they said in response to my question, and what do you, what do you think of that? And then I'd fire back a response. Uh, the bulk of the, the work here, though, was, was Brandon. This is his baby, really. He, he was very invested in this, and, and I feel like I was more of a support system for him. One of Mary Jo's biggest contributions can be seen when you pull up the first story in the series online. Above the text, even above the headline, are 2,000 small dots. 1,000 dots on the left represent 1,000 white children. Six dots are colored in to represent the six white kids that, on average, are in the foster care system in Minnesota. On the right, 1,000 dots with 96 colored in. Those are the American Indian kids in the foster system. The graphic stops you in your tracks. That was probably my biggest role on this story was pushing on telling the story visually. We have a separate kind of data page that has a whole series of graphics that kind of go together. Um, we, you know, we had those internally and we were showing them around to editors as we were working the story through the system. And everybody who looked at it, you know, their jaw was hitting the floor going, oh my gosh, this is stunning. She worked with the Tribune's design team designing and redesigning several graphics to find the best possible version. One designer suggested putting those 2,000 dots at the very top instead of embedding it further down in the story. That led to another challenge. We also had the issue of, okay, well, what is it going to look like 
on a desktop screen versus on a mobile screen, two very different things. You know, a great idea we'd have would maybe look good on desktop, but then it would look like crap on mobile. So um, it was a tough thing to work out. Brandon continued to court a variety of sources. One of them was the judge mentioned earlier, Luis Bartolome. He's one of the few judges in the county who's specially trained to handle these cases. There was a national Indian Child Welfare Conference here in St. Paul earlier this year. He was the only judge in the state to attend it. Brandon didn't just want to interview Judge Bartolome. He wanted to hang out with him for days. He talked to both the judge and the court's public information officer several times over the phone to negotiate access. I tried to show him a few clips of, of similar shadow uh, shadow work by other journalists. Um, Eli Saslow, somebody that I, I actually showed a few stories of his and said, this is something, you know, it's somebody who is basically spending as much time as he can with the person to understand that person's thoughts, those point of views, the actions, why he's taking the actions that he, that he is. Um, and ultimately, he he agreed, I think, because I was so invested in the story and wanting to spend so much time with him. The two ended up spending about three days together, in the courtroom, at lunch, in hallways. You didn't, didn't quite realize this, but the life of the judge is often just waiting for a hearing to start. So a hearing might start at 2 o'clock or supposed to start at 2 o'clock, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting until the attorneys have gotten everything in order. And then you finally get the word to go. And so in between those times, it's just a lot of chatting. But all that access takes its toll. It's easy to understand how covering violence, a war at home or abroad, can leave a lasting impression on a journalist. But that same trauma can also take hold in less extreme circumstances. The stories told by foster parents, foster children, and caseworkers are often filled with rape, murder, drug abuse, neglect. Journalists who devote their lives to covering it and covering it well, spend their days immersed in the absolute worst of humanity. How does a journalist cope with it all? That's, that's, that's a tough question because in many ways it's a personal question. But I, what you do to get through it, I think some of it is you just, in a way, become numb to it and desensitized to it, which is unfortunate, but in a way that's a coping mechanism. Another thing is that I, I do see a counselor every now and then and share and talk to try to get through some of this stuff. Before the series ran, Brandon did something he'd never done before. He reached out to one American Indian couple he'd written an entire story about, Rachel and Brad Goodsky, and with the support of his editor, read them the majority of the piece over the phone. Brandon had first heard the Goodskys speak at the casino, the place that launched this project, and he'd briefly interviewed them afterwards. But the more he thought about their story, the more he realized it perfectly illustrated what so many families in Minnesota have gone through. The couple had struggled with alcoholism, and their children had spent hundreds of days in foster care. But the parents had gotten sober, and their kids came home. The story had a happy ending. The good skies had opened up to Brandon, and he felt like they deserved to know what was going into the story. And after Brandon had finished going through what he had written, Rachel and Brad Goodsky were happy. Then they saw the story online. Rachel sent me both a text message and a message over Facebook Messenger, um, very angry, 
um, calling me a not very nice term, uh, complaining about a couple of things in the story. I think it was more possibly, and again, this is just speculation on my part, just seeing this in print or seeing this online and being confronted with it is entirely different than having it read to you, having it, having somebody try to tell you exactly what they're trying to do or accomplish with the story. Brandon is an investigative reporter. Angry sources aren't exactly new to him. But this was unexpected. Sometimes it's a good thing when an investigation sparks an angry response. Outrage can lead to change. Yet besides the good skies, Brandon and Mary Jo saw little outrage after the series published. There were no protests, no sit-ins at the Capitol, no push to get lawmakers to fix the disparity. Brandon is not surprised. Stories that I've seen that, that affect change generally show that there's a problem and there is a, a villain behind it or something that you can do to change it. This wasn't that story. There is no villain here. There is you know, Child protection workers are not the villains. They are doing what they're supposed to do. He also hasn't heard from many readers. I mean, that's, that's the sad, cold truth, but I've gotten maybe a dozen emails on it. Some were, you know, said, really great job. Thank you for doing that. This is something that needed to be done. A few were, um, you know, why didn't you take a look at this issue or that angle or something to that effect? But there really wasn't a great deal of response. While this sounds depressing, it's a common experience for many investigative reporters. You can work for months, years on a story, but for whatever reason, readers don't react. And in Minnesota overall, the system hasn't changed. Brandon hopes that one day it will. I hope that, that, that state leaders, policymakers get together and really try to determine what's, what's different about Minnesota compared to other states. Because there is something going on in Minnesota that's not happening in other states. Let's try to figure out the why. If we can figure out the why, then what can we do to change it, to make it better, to start strengthening these families rather than breaking them apart and continuing this cycle after cycle after cycle of, of broken families and poverty and drug addiction and alcohol abuse. Brandon and Mary Jo also know that, even if Minnesota's disparity is the worst in the nation, similar situations exist around the country. Other journalists can analyze the data for their own communities, even if they're working in a smaller newsroom with a smaller budget. We'll include some resources in the episode notes. Brandon also said a lot of documentation about child protection is public record, even if it's not readily available. I know it varies from state to state, but whatever records you can get your hands on that explain the reasons of each removal, I think would be, just, that to me was, was one of the guiding uh, forces for me. That's actually been one of the guiding forces for me as I've reported on child protection. Just the petitions, the documents that are explaining the actions, the child child protection workers, why they took the actions that they did. While working on the series, Brandon and Mary Jo would head home each night to their families. Brandon has a 10-year-old daughter. Mary Jo has young twins, a boy and a girl. Seeing their kids each night, it wasn't hard to think of all the kids they'd been reporting on that day. I hope to God that what we're doing here will somehow make life better for, for some other people. Um, that, that our stories will somehow make a difference someday and, and that this trauma will, for, for other people, will go away. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head on over to ire.org podcast to browse our archives. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd love it if you gave us a short five-star review on iTunes. This helps new listeners find us and ultimately introduces more people to the great work of investigative reporters around the country. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Blake Nelson reported this episode. He also designed our new logo and episode artwork. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that over. Cool. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.